So Psalm 133, uh, Karl Barth, who uh, hopefully you'll permit me to quote, uh, I think he's, he's got some great things to say. Um, uh, he says this about uh, what we're doing right now. He says that the church service is the most important, momentous, majestic thing which can possibly take place on earth. Just let that sink in for just a minute. Uh, think about it. What we're participating in right now is the greatest thing in the world. Not only that, it's the greatest thing possible in the world. What we're participating in right now. I realize that you might not be able to make any sense of that statement at all. It sure doesn't overwhelm you, this church service, as the greatest thing which could possibly take place on the earth. <clears throat> in fact, maybe for you, it, it not only just doesn't make sense, it, uh, it actually rings false. Maybe it seems downright dishonest. It feels like a complete contrast with your own experience of church or your, your history with the church. Uh, Psalm 133 offers the king's perspective that corrects our vision of the church. It doesn't just give us a new vision of what the church might, could be, possibly, maybe, if we all tried really hard to achieve that vision together. We haven't done it yet, but maybe. That's not the vision of the church that the psalm is giving us. The psalm restores our vision to see what the church already is, to see what it already is, to see the very real goodness of the church as the gift that God has already given to us. Even though even though our coming together might be terribly difficult for you, it really is the greatest thing which can possibly take place in the world. Hopefully uh, you'll see that as we uh, consider this scripture together. Uh, that's what we'll talk about this morning. Let me pray, then we'll read Psalm 133. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, we pray that you would speak to us. These are the words of the King, and you are our King. And we come to you to listen to sit at your feet, just soak in everything that you have to say to us, to hear the gospel, to hear about what you've done for us, to hear the truth about who God is from you. And we pray that in doing so, as we come and sit and listen and uh, consider this psalm, your word, together, that you would change our lives and we would participate in this church in different ways because your word has transformed us by the power of your spirit. We pray this in your name. Amen. A song of ascents of David. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there, the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, this is one of my favorite psalms. It's the last of the songs of ascents. Those songs, uh, uh, the Psalms 120 through 134. It's the last one that we're going to look at together uh, in our series on the psalms. Uh, the, the songs of ascent, those psalms that bear that title, that header, 
they were sung by the pilgrims going up to Jerusalem for the feasts, the great feasts that took place every year. Uh, they're going up to the festival presence of the Lord, and they're using these psalms in particular. That's the historic understanding of uh, the usage of these psalms. And these songs, they reach a crescendo here, I think, in Psalm 133, um, with just the unbridled celebration of life together in the Lord's presence. That's what you have here. And in one sense, we can imagine this psalm that's sung in the past, thousands of years ago by the pilgrims on their way up to Jerusalem, and they could say how good it is to be here together. You can imagine that very easily. Uh, in another sense, we can imagine this psalm sung in the future by all those who ascend into the heaven of heavens and see the Lord face to face and live with him forevermore. We can imagine it sung in the future how good it is to be here together. We can imagine that. Um, but there's a very real sense, and it may be the hardest sense for us to imagine it, uh, a very real sense in which we can all sing this psalm right now in our weekly celebration together in the presence of the Lord because the Lord Jesus Christ has brought us here by his grace in the loving welcome of God, in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. We can sing how good it is to be here together. And we can see the psalm applying to us right now. <clears throat> Behold, how good and pleasant. That word pleasant can also be translated sweet or delightful. It's a, it's a pleasant experience. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Coming together in the church might not feel so good and pleasant to you. Um, it could be that the strain in your relationships with your brothers and sisters is overwhelming to the point where it's all you can think about when you think about coming together in the church. Uh, you might have serious disappointments or deep wounds from past experiences in the church. It's maybe baggage that you just can't seem to let go of that colors everything about how you engage here in the church. You might be tempted toward bitter complaint about the things you see here, this group of people with these leaders of the church. Bitter complaints about the lack of a compelling vision or half-hearted holiness or a sputtering mission. Nevertheless, it is still worth exclaiming, behold, how good it is to be here together. This is the greatest thing which can possibly take place in the world. It's normal to feel a certain dissonance with celebration like that. It's normal to feel like that just doesn't make sense or that's contrary to my experience of the church. It's normal to feel that way. In fact, it's common to us as sinners to feel some level of aversion, whether you're talking about just a sort of a basic suspicion about the idea or a complete revulsion at the idea of coming together with people like this. It's, it's common, it's universal to us as sinners to feel some aversion to the idea of coming together with people like this. In this week's uh, email newsletter, uh, <clears throat> I mentioned Jean-Paul Sartre's famous line, hell is other people. Hell is other people. That's a natural sentiment. That's a natural human sentiment. It actually takes a supernatural work of the Spirit of God for us to see our coming together, for us to see this thing as the greatest thing imaginable, the greatest thing possible in the world. It takes a supernatural work of God's Holy Spirit for us to be able to sing a psalm like this and mean it and see the significance of it. 
<clears throat> in his play, uh, Sartre, in his play No Exit, he imagines hell very simply. It's a very simple picture of hell. It's three people locked in a room together. And uh, it's the, the very plausible result of three people locked in a room together is misery. It's perpetual. It's inescapable misery. The scenario that he uh, gives us in that is plausible, but it depends on a vision of people as ultimately self-centered. It's three self-centered people locked in a room together. That's his vision of hell. And self-centered people, it's, it's plausible because uh, this is our experience. Self-centered people can't stand to be together with other self-centered people. It's, I, I love Bono's line, I can't live with or without you. I'm stuck, it's tension. We're meant to be together, but I'm self-centered, you're self-centered, and it's just this terrible tension that I feel. We can't stand to be together, really, ultimately. And to imagine such a scenario continuing forever, locked in a room, self-centered people, may indeed be to imagine something like hell itself. It's a realistic vision, because that's what people are like. It's what people are like naturally as sinners. A definition of sinner, you could say, is self-centered. That's what we're like. Even people who are in the closest relationships in this life, in the closest, in the most intimate relationships, tend to make life miserable for each other. You know that. When it's an adage, we hurt those who are closest to us. When your friends come over to play, we're getting together to play our fun games, it's only a matter of time before the game ends with someone in tears, screaming. Uh, even brothers, even brothers of all people, seem always to be fighting, clawing, biting, leaving each other with scars. Even brothers. I mean, you think that's funny, because especially brothers, especially brothers, always fighting. And when you get a bunch of people together in the same room who are like that, a bunch of sinners, in the same room, you have a recipe for disaster, and it's the easiest thing to allow our resentments to grow. In my self-centeredness, I fixate on how the sinfulness of others doesn't fulfill all my desires. The sinfulness of others doesn't make me happy. It doesn't feed my self-centeredness, their self-centeredness. It doesn't do that. In fact, their sinfulness really hurts me in ways that are painful and damaging, and I can't just overlook. And this kind of experience of other people has a cumulative effect. We remember all the bad stuff. You know. You remember all the bad stuff. We dwell on it. We keep track of it until the idea of coming together is just sour. It's just sour. But life together in the church, believe it or not, life together in the church is different. It is different. It's not different because there are no self-centered sinners here. It is not different because we never hurt anyone. Life in the church, life together in the church is not different because we always do everything right and we always make everyone happy. Life together in the church is not hell. Life together in the church is something to celebrate, like this psalm celebrates, 
Because here is where sinners come together in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in the true unity of the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. That's why this place is different. It says in, uh, in the psalm, when brothers dwell in unity, it's like the precious oil. It's the good, literally, uh, translated. It's like the good oil on the head, running down the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. So the scriptures acknowledge uh, everywhere, the scriptures everywhere acknowledge that the people who come together like this in the presence of the Lord are an awful broken lot of miserable, self-loving sinners. It's just like Obi-Wan Kenobi said to Luke Skywalker a long time ago, far, far away, as they were coming into the Moss Eisley spaceport, you will never find a more wretched hive of scum and villainy. You thought that only applied to, I saw a meme that applied that to uh, Washington, D.C. It applies to us. So when we say, when we say, behold, how good it is to be here together. This is the greatest thing which can possibly take place in the world. We are taking into full account the scum and villainy. That this is a wretched hive of scum and villainy. We're taking into full account all of that. When we say how good it is to be here together. This is a place for bad people. This is a place for people like you and me. Sorry if I just lumped you into a category that you didn't want to be lumped into. It's a place for bad people. For us to come together to find our life in the presence of God. People like us have always needed, and we will always need, a holy mediator in our relationship with God. We need a priest to reconcile us to God, to make things right between us, uh, to restore us in our relationship with the God of true love. In ancient Israel, that role was performed or pictured by Aaron, who shows up in our psalm. He's the high priest. And then it was performed by his descendants after him. But when Aaron himself was first being consecrated as the high priest in the book of Exodus, God himself calls attention to specific details of that ordination ceremony. He gives specific instructions about a couple things that are very relevant to our passage. He gives instructions about Aaron's garments. And he gives instructions about the anointing oil to be used at his ordination, the ordination of the high priest. The garments were to be considered holy for glory and for beauty. And the pieces of these garments, the different pieces of the the garments that the high priest was to wear as he performed his priestly service, uh, they had symbolic meaning. They had spiritual meaning. Most importantly, I think for us this morning, uh, we're not going to walk through all the pieces of Aaron's garments, but up at the top on his shoulders, on his shoulders would be two onyx stones, the black stones, one on each side, each one with six names on it, the names of the 12 tribes of Israel engraved, six on each stone, one stone on each shoulder. And this represented the unity of the tribes. These tribes are together in the person of the high priest. They're together as the high priest carries them, the names of God's people, united, being carried by the high priest into the Lord's presence in the holy place upon his own shoulders. 
And the anointing oil was to be made of the finest spices. A perfumer was going to mix this. It was going to be a rich, fragrant, wonderful, unique blend of liquid myrrh and sweet-smelling cinnamon and aromatic cane and cassia and olive oil. Unique. The, the precious oil, the good oil, was holy. It was holy, which meant it could only be used for this purpose. It could only be used for the consecration of the priest as he performed his holy work of reconciliation, the one who was ordained to make peace, to bring peace, to bring unity between God and his people. And the psalm gives this beautiful picture of this good oil poured out on the head, not just of anybody, on the head of the high priest, Aaron flowing so generously down his head, flowing onto the collar of his body, where you'd see the first thing it's going to hit is those stones that represent the unity of God's people. And this picture is fulfilled for us, not just in Aaron, not just in his descendants, really in the great high priest, Jesus. He's the Christ. That means he's the anointed one. That's what that, that word means. He's the one who's been anointed. He's the head of his body, the church. And the anointing that was poured on the Christ as our head has flowed down onto us as his body. The Holy Spirit is the precious oil. The Holy Spirit is the good oil, the oil of gladness, he's called in Psalm 45, I think. The Holy Spirit is the, he's the spirit of unity. This is who he is. The Holy Spirit who's poured, about, uh, poured out upon Christ. The big deal about Jesus Christ as the anointed one is he's the one who's been anointed with the Holy Spirit in order to be able to anoint others with the same Holy Spirit and with fire. <clears throat> the Holy Spirit is the spirit of unity. He's, he's the eternal lifeblood, if you will, of the, the Holy Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's the one who unites the Father and the Son in true love, in true communion. He's the uniter of persons, the Holy Spirit. That's not just what he does. That's who he is. It's like the the essence of who he is. He's the uniter of persons. And God the Father has poured out his Holy Spirit upon Christ so lavishly that the Holy Spirit, the very love of God himself, has been poured out upon the body of Christ. He's been poured out into our very hearts. So now we share the same spirit of unity. We share the same eternal lifeblood of the God whose very being is persons in fellowship, persons in communion, persons in delighted love. That's who God is. It's who he's always been. And he's invited us into that life by giving us his own Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ. And he's done it not because we're a particularly peaceful people who get along really well. He's done it not because uh, we figured out how to be uh, at peace with one another. We got along well enough. He says, yeah, yeah, that's a place where I can pour out my Holy Spirit. He's done it because out of sheer grace, the anointed one has anointed us with his own anointing because Jesus Christ has anointed Christians, little Christs, 
little anointed ones with his own Holy Spirit. It's a gift of his grace. Our unity has descended upon us from above. We see that language uh, three times in this short psalm, very short psalm, and that same word <clears throat> shows up three times. You have in verse 2, our unity descended, it's running down upon our high priest as the head of the body, and then so our unity is running down and descending upon us as his body, and then the same word again in verse 3, the unity is descending, it's falling on us in true life-giving ways. So Derek Kidner says that true unity, true unity, which is the thing that this psalm is really celebrating, true unity, like all good gifts, is from above. It's bestowed rather than contrived. It's a blessing far more than an achievement. So it says in verse 3, it's like the dew of Hermon, which is a, a fairly tall mountain, 9,200 feet high uh, at its peak. It's in the north, sort of the northern borderlands of Israel. Uh, it's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion, which is in the far south in Judah, a small mountain. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. So this is a picture, I think, uh, we're talking about the same dew falling upon both this mountain far away in the north and this, this mountain here in the south. Uh, it's a picture of all the peoples in the land. All of, all of God's people being united by the same heavenly, life-giving dew. On a parched desert hill where there are no rivers and streams like Zion, orchards and gardens only grow because of the dew. Because water magically appears out of heaven. And it just appears on the ground as if out of nowhere. Dew is a real source of life in the dead places. That was the experience that would have been familiar to people reading this psalm. And the Holy Spirit is that. He's the dew from heaven. He's the blessing who falls upon us and who brings us new life together. New life forevermore. That's the blessing that he's commanded among his people. So with the triune God, true life is life together. True life is life together in the communion of the Holy Spirit. With the triune God, eternity is the Holy Spirit uniting others, uniting people. With the triune God, then heaven, heaven, not hell, heaven is other people, united by the Holy Spirit. And we have this. We have this gift. We have it already. We have it right now. This life together was won by our great high priest. This life together is poured out upon us from heaven. It's already happened. This spiritual life together is in our midst right now, even in our wretched hive of scum and villainy. Even in our church full of self-loving sinners. And you might be prone to think that you can really only enjoy this life together once, it's, once it has fully redefined your existence entirely. Once it's fully been manifested in the new heavens and the new earth, when I'm resurrected to be like Jesus, and you are too, 
I'll never have any conflict anymore and every pain, every tear, everything evil, everything sinful, everything bad has been wiped away. That's when we'll really be able to sing a song like this. Yep, maybe that's true. When we'll be able to fully sing this psalm. But we share this life together right now. It's a reality that's proclaimed by the gospel of Jesus Christ and we're called to live in light of it. That's the way the New Testament calls us to live, not, not to achieve something that we haven't yet experienced, but to live in light of something and to live it out with each other, this thing that's already been given to us. Paul writes a lot about the life of the Spirit in his letter to the Ephesians. And uh, Travis read this in our New Testament reading a bit earlier from Ephesians 4. He says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to, to which you've been called. Walk in a manner that's commensurate with this new life that's been given to you. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. It's a, it's a unity. The unity of the Spirit something you already have. You're called to maintain it. The church is not called to strive to attain a unity that we don't have. And that's really important for us. We're living in response to the reality that's been created by Jesus Christ. The first part of Ephesians is all about that. He is our peace. He has brought us together. He's reconciled disparate peoples in his body. He's reconciled us to God. He's reconciled us to one another. That's the reality we're living in. We're not trying to create something that doesn't already exist through the work of Jesus Christ, and through the Spirit who's been given to us, we're called to maintain the unity that we already have in the Spirit, to walk in a manner that corresponds to the reality of the gospel, the reality in which we, we live. We're called to live as if we believed what the King says in this psalm. Behold how good it is to be here together. And do you know what this divine life together looks like? When it's manifested in the church, what it looks like to maintain the unity of the Spirit that we've been given, just keep reading. Just keep reading in Ephesians on the life of the Spirit. It says a little bit later in, in chapter 4, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So we live out the fellowship of the Spirit largely in our forgiveness. And you know what that means. It means that the blessing of life together in the church means we will enjoy plenty of opportunities to forgive. Plenty of opportunities to let go of our bitterness and our anger toward one another. Plenty of opportunities to forgive one another the real pain that we've caused each other. In this world, you're never going to run out of those opportunities. In this church, you're never going to run out of those opportunities. It just means that we'll continue as sinners among sinners in the wretched hive of scum and villainy, just like all the churches to which the apostles wrote all their letters. This is what church is like. This is what it's always been like. And that can easily, naturally be interpreted by us as a miserable fate indeed. Coming to church is like hell, if that's what it's going to be like. But in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, even our 
Even our sinfulness can be redeemed and transformed. So Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he wrote the book Life Together, which is the best book probably ever written. He says, even when sin and misunderstanding burden the communal life, is not the sinning brother still a brother with whom I too stand under the word of Christ? Will not his sin be a constant occasion for me to, to what? Complain and hate him? No. Will not his sin be a constant occasion for me to give thanks that both of us may live in the forgiving love of God in Jesus Christ? Thus, the very hour of disillusionment with my brother becomes incomparably salutary because it so thoroughly teaches me that neither of us can ever live by our own words and deeds, but only by that one word and deed which really binds us together, the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. The forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ is the only reason we're brothers, the only reason we're sisters. And you can see that even most clearly when you've got something to forgive a brother for, and you're called to live with that brother in forgiveness. That's the only way we can even call each other brothers and sisters in the church is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit as a gift from above that is true even here, even now, even when we're not acting like heavenly brothers and sisters to one another. Behold, how good it is that there's a place for people like us in the grace of God. Behold, how good it is to be here together with you This is the greatest thing which can possibly take place in the world. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that as we consider what the church is and we consider our own feelings toward the church, that all of our thoughts, all of our affections, all our considerations would revolve entirely around you, around who you are, Lord Jesus, around what you have done, around what you have accomplished in bringing us together by your grace and in the love of God and in the fellowship of the Spirit. We pray that our vision for what this place is would be shaped by you entirely and not by the ways that we're prone to interpret our experiences in the church. We pray that you would help us to live in the Holy Spirit together to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, to to live like we believe this good news about what this place is. We pray that you would help us to live in forgiveness of one another, to extend uh, your own forgiveness to one another, not just in our lips, but in our hearts. And we pray that in uh, so doing, you really would transform this place to look like what it truly is in God's sight. That you would make us a place of peace, a place where sins and trespasses are overcome by grace and by a love that endures forever. We pray this uh, for your sake, for the sake of your kingdom. Amen.